Well, good morning from me. Um, I'm Owen, if you've forgotten. I had to get directions to church this morning because it's been such a long time, but it's great to be back. And for the next few weeks, we're looking at some furniture in the Bible. (laughs) But you should come because um, it's more important than we might think. And this sermon is called God the Father, His Seat, and You. And you, if you're listening at home. And the church in Exodus are about to build a massive tent. And it's probably the most important building that's ever been made. Now, if I asked you what are the seven wonders of the world, because you're from Park End, you'd know them all and you'd rattle them off. Wouldn't you? Okay. Well, here's a few of them, the ones I can pronounce. Christ the Redeemer, uh, the Colosseum, the Taj Mahal, uh, Petra, the Great Wall of China, and there's two that I just I can't pronounce. It's there in Mexico and uh, Petra. But none of them compare to this wonder of the world, the tabernacle, the big tent that God made the church build. And it's life-changing stuff, and it's in the next few chapters and the next few weeks that we'll be listening. None of those other wonders of the world will make a difference to your life like this wonder of the world, this building, which is better than all of them. None of those other buildings will make a difference to people in your staff room this week as they go through a divorce. This one will. None of those other wonders of the world will make a difference if you drink yourself to sleep. This one will. None of the other ones will matter to you or change your life like this one will if, say, your child is rushed into emergency surgery this week. This matters. This matters. All of those other wonders, they show off the brilliance of man. But this building shows off the brilliance of God and who He is. Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's where we come in. Because everybody listening today, here and at home, you have been made to know this God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in a life-changing way. And who He is, is spelt out in this building. And it's life-changing. I don't know if you ever say anything more than once to one of your friends, or if you're a parent, you ever say anything more than once to a child? Why do you say that? Do not kick the ball in the house. Not that we would do such things in the manse of Park End. But you might have to say that several times a day. More than once. Why? Because it's important. And did you know the building of this tent is in chapters 25 to 31. And then God says it again. Exactly the same stuff in 35 to 40. This matters. Now let me tell you an interesting thing. Paul read it. Here's a quiz to keep you awake. What's the interesting thing in these verses? Here's Exodus 25, verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will live among them, says God. Make this tent and all its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you, says God. Have them make a chest or an ark, depending on your Bible version. Why is that interesting? Well, I'll tell you, because they start this building with the furniture, not the outside of the building. Now, if you went down to an estate agent's this week to see a builder's work, 
you want to buy a house, and they showed you a piece of furniture in a field, would you buy the house? Probably not. You might do if you're into that sort of thing. But most people would want to see the building first, and then you put the sofa and the bed in. But here in Exodus 25, this key detail that we so often skim over is, you're going to build a tent, but now build me a chest. You're like, what? Why? Why? Um, The tent we're going to do probably in a few weeks. We are starting where God starts. The furniture first. And now you're asking... Well, well, wait, no, I'll say one more thing, and then you're going to ask. The tent represents, and we're going to see this, creation, the cosmos, the stars, the heavens, the earth, the whole world and everything around it. That's what the tent represents. We're going to see that. But they start with the furniture. And now you're going to ask, well, what's older than the creation? If God wants a tent to show off the heavens and the earth and creation and the stars, like what's possibly older? If the tent means that, but they're building something first before the tent, what on earth is older than the stars above us? What? Well, the answer is, the Bible says, God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit come before the stars. And the world. And you. And so they begin this building project right in the middle of church life, in the ancient church, with three pieces of furniture uh, representing what's before the heavens and the stars and you and your problems and your issues and your Monday morning. What's before that? And lo and behold, they make three pieces of furniture. Because the Bible says God is Father, Son, and Spirit, but one God. And now we're getting somewhere. Right smack in the middle of the ancient church isn't um, charity work, climate change, helping people, all those things are wonderful. Right smack in the heart of the church is God. And everything gets built around that. And everything the church does circulates around that. And here's a fun exercise as we hammer home what this chest means. That's all we're doing for the rest of this morning. The chest, the ark. Here's a fun exercise which can turn a bit sour, but here we go. Um, I've been asking people this week. If you wanted to tell a stranger who you are, and you're not allowed to use words but you can say three objects which best represent you, what would you say? Where it goes sour is if you ask someone else to list three pieces of uh, whatever that represent you. Perhaps if you're not getting on with them too well, you might not get the answers you want. Take ten seconds. What three pieces best sum up your entire life and who you are? Any objects in the world? It's really fascinating. Quite humbling. If you ask an angry wife to describe three objects about her husband, she's like, beer. That's all he's into, beer and cars. I googled, um, like, what is a, like a wife? 
what best represents a wife. Top of the list on one of them was a to-do list. Apparently, wives keep to-do lists and leave them all around the house, and that's the defining feature of a housewife, a to-do list. I'm just leaving that out there, ladies. That was Google that said that one. Defining feature, lists everywhere around the house. Angry husbands like, just these lists. My whole wife is just a list. That's what the internet was. Gets quite awkward. Well, here we've got three pieces of furniture which tell us who God is. You don't even need words because they start with these objects. And Paula read it in the first one, and our one this morning is the Ark of the Covenant. That's where they start, the chest. Otherwise known as the Ark of Promise, or the seat, or the big seat, or the seat of mercy, or the atonement seat. That is what this is. And what it was, wasn't a to-do list, wasn't a can of beer, wasn't a car, it was a box. And it was a box that had a lid, which you could put things in. And that lid was wood and covered in gold and had angels on it with outstretched wings. And Paula read, make an atonement cover for the chest of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, Put two cherubim, those are angels, children, hammered out with gold on the end, and they're just like this on top of the box, like outstretched arms, worshipping. I was told to watch Indiana Jones' Raiders of the Lost Ark as preparation for this sermon. A minister friend of mine said, you cannot preach on the Ark of the Covenant unless you've watched Indiana Jones. It's um, staple preparation, essential watch. And I watched it, and at the risk of losing all my friends here, I found it utterly numbing. I was bored to tears. I'm sorry, it was just chase scene after chase scene. I'm going to lose my job now, aren't I? I learned nothing about it, but you might have seen it in that, if you watch that. By the by, uh, we're not getting into this, but uh, if you wanted to do a trivia question to a Bible student, ask them what did they put in the box? We're not looking at that today, but three items get put in the box as well. Anybody know that? Have a think. Um, it's just in passing. Well, I'll tell you, the Ten Commandments were put in there. Some bread that God fed the church with, uh, with was in there. And this uh, piece of wood with all like blossoms, this lively piece of wood. Because even in the box, you had the purity of the Father, the bread, Jesus, and the life of the Spirit. But we're not going there. We'll do that on Thursdays. Back to this one piece to hammer it home for the rest of this sermon. This chest was also called the throne. That's what was before creation. And if you don't believe me, here's 1 Samuel chapter 4. The people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the angels. They're carrying a throne. Right smack in the heart of church life was a throne, a big seat. You can find that in 1 Chronicles 13, 2 Samuel 6, 2 Kings 19. Here's Psalm 80. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead us like a flock, you who sit enthroned, between the cherubim. Hear us! And if you've ever read Daniel 7, 
or Revelation chapter 4, you'll find that heaven is situated around a throne where God the Father sits. And it's one big worship scene. And here they are, build a box to show the world about him sitting on his throne. Build that, because that is what predates everything. What is the chief prayer that Jesus wants every one of us to pray as a church when we meet? Where does Jesus start? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. On earth, as it is in heaven. Children, who's in charge of a kingdom? And the children say, a king. And what does a king sit on? And they say, a throne. And that is the point of these chapters. Why do we love sin so much? I know I do. Why are we such a mess? Why are we so anxious all of the time? Why do we love ourselves more than we love God and our neighbors? Why? Because we do not think about this throne enough. So they build a box. So it's always before them. Nobody stands at the Grand Canyon and goes, Aren't I amazing? Do they? They're in the presence of something bigger. And their lives fall into the right perspective. No one who knew about this box in that church would say this. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Moses is like, dude, have you seen the box? Before even the stars were made, let alone you, there is a throne. A higher throne. What will you face this week? I don't know. Probably won't be easy. But I do know this. There are some godly, spirit-filled, throne-centered Christians who will probably be able to handle what comes their way this week. Why? How can Christians be so steady as they face a difficult day? Well, I tell you this. They don't stand in the mirror every morning and go, I will be more joyful today and full of peace. I will. The steady Christians, the trusting Christians in difficulties, they just know there's a throne and they trust their heavenly Father who sits on it. And that is how we get through each day. You may never have paid attention to God on his seat before. And it's like there's a whopping big curtain between you and this seat and you don't even care. Well, it's interesting because they used to put this chair, this seat behind the curtain. For people like us, who have a worship displacement syndrome. It's called sin. And we keep worshiping other things. And the one person we should be worshiping, there's like a big curtain between us. You just can't see how wonderful God is. So you keep worshiping beers and cars and to-do lists. That's why we get defined by them. Well, guess what? When Jesus died on Calvary, this curtain was torn top to bottom. And it was like, by his death, there's no more curtain. It's like if you focus on Jesus, he's going to take away his sins. So you and this throne become very intimate. 
You're not outside anymore. That's why it's called a mercy seat. And once a year, they used to cover that seat in blood. And that was a picture of what Jesus was going to do a few years later. He's going to solve our worship displacement syndrome and bring us back to the Father who sits on a throne today. No Christian this morning is outside of this seat, distant from this seat. Every prayer that we prayed this morning is heard because there's no curtain heard by a heavenly Father who sits on a throne. And I'm going to finish by saying two fairly important things. Um, I've been reading a lot of secular psychologists and how they treat anxiety in the modern era. And they say this, by and large, if you are an anxious person, and maybe you are, lay out every single one of your fears. Don't hide from them. This is secular psychology. If you're a worried person, lay out everything that's worrying you. Don't suppress it. Spell it out. Then you can formulate a plan. Because an invisible enemy causes great fear. So spell it out. And it's because the brain, when you face an invisible enemy, the brain has a mechanism to fight an invisible enemy. And the mechanism is cower, run, and hide. You spell out your enemy, you can confront it and formulate a plan. That's secular psychology. It's quite helpful. Problem is, it can go one better, which is the privilege of Christianity. We lay out our problems, but we say, our Father, help us each day. I don't want to fight this one on my own. Our Father, who art in heaven, help me with these enemies I've got this week. And that throne's now like a living room where your father sits. And your older brother's in there. And they're like, yep, we got you. This week, there's no curtain. Your sins are forgiven. You are in. And the final thing I'm going to say is this. At the moment, I'm writing a book about suffering. And I'm asking some of my Christian friends to answer this question. How does or why does God allow suffering? Last night, my friend writes her piece for my book. And it's about her friend. And I'm going to read it to you. And this is where the rubber hits the road about how much we really believe there's a father on the throne. And we're not just Sunday morning Christians, but tomorrow we wake up and we trust there's God on the throne. And here's the piece. Olesia, a lady from Moldova, grew up in state orphanages rejected by both parents. As a child and a young person, she suffered great physical and sexual abuse at the hands of others. When a teenager, someone came to tell her of the Lord Jesus Christ who never turns anyone away, who comes to him who is and he is willing to give up his life for them. And at that moment, she believed and trusted in Jesus. Still in her teens, Alessia began to experience strange physical symptoms and multiple sclerosis was diagnosed. Today, she lives alone, has serious mobility and health problems, and is dependent on others for many things that we take for granted. Her income is tiny, and she spends long periods of time on her own. But when I visit her, 
I know that the subject of her conversation, prayers, and praise will be the Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. People can be blessed with great theology, ministry, and fellowship, but do those things leave a mark on our lives? Moldovans would not always benefit from deep, reformed theology, but I see in their lives a lack of murmuring and complaining and a profound trust in God. We have much to learn. Our Father, His seat, and you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All will be well. Amen.